0: Our uh, call to worship this morning is found in the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 136, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him, alone, who, to him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. And to him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Would you join me in a word of prayer for our service this morning? God, I thank you for the chance we have to gather here, um, even virtually together. Um, God, I thank you for your steadfast love for us and your goodness for us, towards us, um, that endures forever. Um, and God, as we look towards um, some uncertainty coming up this summer, we know that um, we need not have any fear um, because we know that you are good to us and your love for us endures forever. Um, so I pray this morning as we come together to worship you, that um, we would worship you in response to knowing how much you love us in response to um, the great gifts you've given us um, and the love that you have poured out on us and continue to pour out on us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Morning, CFC. Uh let's sing this first song here and celebrate um, that steadfast love that we just read about in the book of Psalms.
1: <clears throat> As we come into your prayer. Passion's so amazing, but we've come to give you thanks for all you've done. Because of your love, we're forgiving. Because of your love, our so hearts to plead. And we lift you up. Because of your love.
0: next song we're going to do uh, was one that i added to the rotation right towards the beginning of our study through the book of first john um it's uh they will know we are christians by our love and we added it in because um it really matches up with this theme throughout the book of first john that um that we will know like the our mark as christians is our love um so i thought man we can't end our last sunday in the book of first john without singing this song again um so would you join me on uh, they will know we are christians by our love
1: We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know. Christians by our love. And we will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. All praise to the Father. And all praise to the Father through all things come. And all praise to Christ Jesus, His only Son. And all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. Our love, yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. Yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love.
2: Today's scripture reading is from Revelation, chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, This is God's word.
0: Thanks for you, God.
1: Join the song of the angels round the throne, giving worship to the one and died and lives forever all unite with the saints who fought the fight resting now in heaven's light where beauty dwells and suffering is no more now their suffering is no more singing high to the Savior singing hallelujah to the land How I long for the day when flesh is done Fear and hate are overcome All the earth is freed from grief and pain And on that day Every eye will meet his gaze. Sin and death will flee away. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we will bow before our God. Singing hallelujah, glory to the Savior. Singing hallelujah to the Lamb. Sing hallelujah! Singing hallelujah! Glory to the Saviour! Singing hallelujah to the Lamb, worthy, 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 and worthy, worthy. Worthy, 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 and worthy, 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 worthy—all the saints adore thee, singing hallelujah. To the Savior Singing Hallelujah To the Lamb Worthy worthy, Worthy Worthy All the saints Adore Thee Singing Hallelujah To the Lamb Singing Hallelujah
3: we are going to take this opportunity now to pray for the offering i want to thank everyone who has been giving diligently uh even though we're not in the building um obviously we still have uh needs of funds at this time uh, so we're thankful for everyone who who uh sacrificially and diligently gives. Pray with me, please. Lord, we give thanks for this day. We are uh, grateful that you are a God who cares about his people, that you care about situations that we're in. You provide for us um, through work, sometimes through other means, and We are dependent on you for our daily bread. We pray that you would give us much wisdom um, in the use of our funds, be it personal or as a church, as we uh, try to advance your kingdom, that uh, we would not be wasteful, but that we would be good stewards. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.
4: Well, I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to 1 John as we wrap up this short but packed uh, book of the Bible, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. If you were with us last week uh, in the previous passage, you remember that John talked to us about a wonderful gift that we've been given, and that is the gift of prayer. And what makes prayer a wonderful gift is not just the availability of it, but the effectiveness of it. And I challenge us to think about the fact that I wonder if a lot of the times when we are prayerless or not as prayerful as we could be, might be because somewhere in the back of our hearts, we've kind of chalked prayer up to something that doesn't really work. You know, I asked for this, I don't get it. Um, I got the opposite of it, or I don't hear an answer, uh, whatever the case might be. And then John tells us, actually, when we pray according to God's will, he hears us. And by hearing us, John means he grants the request that we ask. That's powerful. We have an almighty sovereign God who moves when we pray. That doesn't mean we control God. Because, of course, those prayers need to be according to God's will. But there's a sense in which even the things that God wills to do, he does it when his people pray. Now, that's mysterious. I don't know all the ins and outs of that. But think about all the grand mysterious things that we depend on daily. We don't understand gravity. I mean, we get some things about gravity, but we don't really understand gravity, but we depend on it all the time. We don't understand time right? We're still trying to figure out time, right? Relativity and those other theories, but we depend on it daily. And so we don't want to get stuck trying to figure out how does it work to have a sovereign God who accomplishes his sovereign will, but yet we see scripture saying in order for God to do that, we need to pray for it to happen. Prayer is not nothing. Prayer is not something that is just sort of a, a spiritual exercise. God's going to do what He's going to do anyway. It doesn't matter if I pray. The script Scripture doesn't talk like that. It doesn't write like that. Uh, the authors of Scripture write that you don't have because you don't ask. Right, James, uh, John, telling us uh, if you pray according to God's will, then the other shoe will drop. Then that thing that you've requested will happen when you pray. Uh, and it's hard to figure out that mystery that sort of the complexity of how that all works but we're not called to figure out how it works we're called to pray we're called to be a prayerful people and what john wants to do is sort of move us away from thinking about prayer mainly as something for trivial things as something that is for specific things that we want pray that uh tomorrow goes well. Pray that it doesn't rain. Pray that the store I really want to reopen is one of the ones that opens. You know, pray for this, that, and the other. Does God care about small details? Yeah. But you'll notice John's tone is rather than expressing your faith by hating your brothers, you're to express your faith by loving your brothers. And one of the most loving things you can do for a brother or sister in Christ is pray for them. And there's, there's not a lot here, at least in this text, about praying for yourself, but to utilize that grand gift, that access you have to God to pray for someone else. And in fact, your praying for someone else might be the difference between their life and death. Your praying for someone else might be the difference for their eternity. And we'll see that as we unpack these next few verses. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. And you'll see that text that we just covered about prayer in verses 13 to 15. Uh, This confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will in verse 14, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask him. Well, what kinds of things, John? What kinds of things, John, can I ask? And I know that it's according to God's will that I ask it. Can I pray for a parking spot? Can I pray for the weather? Can I pray for a sports team? John doesn't even want to waste time, right, Uh, with those matters. He gives us an example of what to pray for. And it's a verse that often gets neglected because it's confusing. uh, It's difficult. But he gives us the example. He's still talking about prayer when he talks about seeing a brother committing sin. In verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, Well, that's weird. We'll unpack that in a second. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. Ask who? Well, he's talking about prayer, like the previous verses said. So ask God. He shall ask, and God will give him life. So those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So here we have a scenario where he is encouraging the believers to pray an example of the prayer that he's talking about. If you pray according to God's will, God will grant that request when you pray it according to God's will. It's a promise. This is effective praying, not wishy-washy, hopeful prayer, right? I might pray for the weather tomorrow, but I don't know what God's will is for the weather tomorrow. So that's not an effective prayer, is it? And that's how we treat prayer. We pray for the weather. We pray it doesn't rain. It did rain. And we're like, well, God does what he wants to do. We pray for the rain and it does rain. And we go, well, maybe that was my prayer. But it feels like a crapshoot because maybe He doesn't, maybe it doesn't. We don't know what God's will is. And I'm not saying we should never pray when we don't know what God's will is. What I'm saying is we need to spend more time, more focus on praying what we do know God's will is but we do the opposite. Oh, that's already God's will. Why pray for it? I'm going to pray for what I don't know. But but the scripture's emphasis is the opposite. You know it's God's will. Don't say, "Well, God's going to do what he wants anyway." Pray it, and it's a more powerful prayer. It's an effective prayer because you know it's God's will to pray it. But what's an example? When you're in church, you're in a church community, and there's a brother or a sister that you know well. Maybe you don't know them that well, but they're a brother or sister they come to church they hang out they worship with us they sing with us they bring their families to church whatever the case might be for all you know this is a brother this is a sister and they've committed a sin they've tripped they've done something wrong evil uh, transgression iniquity right all the different ways that we can address their violation of god's will John is saying your response to that needs to be to pray for them because your prayer can rescue them. If they're sinning a sin that does not lead to death, you ask God and God will give them life. So if you don't ask God, they may not get life. It it has that tone to it. Now, again, Obviously, if you don't pray, God will raise someone else up to pray. He's going to do what he wants to do, but he's inviting the church community to be a part of effecting God's will in real life, and we do that by praying. We don't do that by going, well, God's sovereign. I guess I don't have to pray. It's the opposite. And so we recognize we serve a God who's going to do his will, but he does that through uh, commanding his believers to pray, and his one example of choice is to pray for another brother or another sister who's sinned. We don't want to throw them under the bus. We also don't want to ignore it. And we all sin. We, we take it seriously. But we, we take it to the Lord. And we don't firstly recommend counseling. We don't firstly recommend a cool book that we read. We don't firstly just quote verses at them. We don't firstly say, well, just get an accountability relationship. All those things are great. But if prayer is missing in those things, we're missing the prescription that John gives us, which is pray for them. Pray for them. Not in a Facebook, I'll pray for you kind of way. Actually take them before the Lord because it's a matter of life and death. So what does he mean? We have to unpack this. It is weird. It's strange. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And to those who commit sins that do not, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, he's being pretty repetitive. He wants you to know there's a difference between sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. Sins that result in death, sins that don't result in death, sins that bring one to destruction, and sins that don't necessarily bring one to destruction. And so he teases out that difference. Really, obviously, in the middle of verse 16, there is sin that leads to death. There is that kind. And I'm not saying you should pray for that. I'm saying you should pray for the the person who, the brother who sins, or sister who sins, a kind of sin that doesn't lead to death the way that other sins do. So obviously, there's two different kinds of sinning here, and we need to figure out what that is. And I think one of the ways to do that is to figure out what he means by life and death. Uh, This is controversial and not everybody agrees with the exact interpretation here. I'm gonna give you my interpretation uh, because I don't wanna take 30 minutes running down every possible uh, way to handle the text. I'm just gonna give you the way that I think is the most consistent. And maybe a year from now, I realize another position was there uh, that I should have considered uh, more carefully, but i don 't think firstly that he 's talking about physical life and death, and that would be in agreement with most commentators that that he 's not talking about sin that leads to actual physical death but rather sins that lead to some kind of spiritual death versus sins that don't necessarily mean spiritual death. If he meant physical death, I think it just would read a little weird uh, if If you see someone committing a sin, but that sin didn't kill them, you know, they took drugs, but they didn't take drugs to the point of overdosing and dying. Well, then pray for them so that God will give them life. Well, if they didn't die, they already have life. Right? If if death is physical, then the life has to be physical, I think. It would be weird for him to switch from physical death to spiritual life. But if you're praying for someone whose sin didn't kill them, Maybe they're in the hospital and they're really hurt and banged up, but they didn't die. Pray for them so that they won't die. Not sure. And then it would be pretty repetitive to give another three lines. I'm telling you guys, not all sins result in death. Some sins do result in death, but not all sins result in death. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but some sin, there is sin, that doesn't lead to death. Guys, not all sin kills you immediately. Do we need like three whole lines repeating that? Is it too obvious that some sins you end up dying from and some sins you don't? I mean, some drunk drivers die from it and some don't. I'm not sure he's talking about that. It's possible, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what he means is you have a brother or a sister sinning, but that sin doesn't mean that they are on the out like all the people that he's talked about that have been a part of this church that started out with the gospel and then they left the gospel. They repudiate the gospel. They don't believe in Christ. They don't love their brothers. They're very much like Cain. They hate their brothers and they left and they're no longer a part of us. If they were a part of us, they would have stayed with us, but they left because they're not a part of us. These are the people he's talking about. These are people that are sinning themselves to death, Because it's not, oops, I sinned. Every Christian does that. And he told us that. When we do sin, we have Christ. We can confess, and he cleanses us from unrighteousness. That's not sin that leads to death. That's that's your, your Christian that is still struggling with sin. And that category is the category of people that need to get back up, get back on the horse, stop sinning, repent, clean up the mess as best as they can, make amends where they need to make amends, and push forward. But some people are beyond that. There's a category of people that sin to the point where there's no coming back. Like these people that weren't weren't okay with just not believing the gospel anymore. They try to lead people astray to believe a false gospel like they did. And I think that's mainly on John's mind throughout this entire letter. I think that's what's on his mind now. And so when he tells us that uh, we can pray for someone who, who has sinned, They haven't necessarily sinned themselves to death. They haven't sinned to the point of being outside of God's grace or beyond uh, uh, the gospel, so to speak. Uh, But they messed up, and you pray for them, and God will give them life. Now, here's the catch. You can turn my own question back on me. If, If this is a person who's a Christian, they have spiritual life already. What does it mean for God to say, if you pray for the Christian, who already has spiritual life, I will grant them life. And the answer to that, I think, is that he means ultimate life. Because I think that he means ultimate death. This person has sinned. If they sin the sin leading to death, these people that are on the out, these apostates, they're already spiritually dead, aren't they? He says, he didn't say they were a part of us. He said they never were a part of us. They talked the talk, but after a while, you realize they didn't walk the walk. And it was, it was just gibber jabber the entire time. They never were Christians. And so those of you who know me and you've been around CFC long enough, you know that I don't believe that you get saved and then you get unsaved, and then you get saved and you get unsaved. There are people that look saved. And then through bearing fruit, you realize the kind of tree that they are. They didn't turn into a, a different tree. You realize they weren't that tree. They never were saved. They just were dunked in water. They just showed up to a building. They just sang songs off a screen. They just said said amen in the right parts in the sermon. Didn't mean they were a Christian. Something has revealed the fact that they never were a part of us. So he's talking about people that already have life in Christ or already dead, right? And not living in Christ. But what he means by sin not leading to death or sin leading to death, what he means is final death, ultimate death, death in the ultimate sense. Eternal death, and what he means by life is that eternal life that is uh, proven finally on that day of judgment, chapter 4, verse 17. So, I think he means final death and final life, and there is a kind of sin that leads to a final death. Now, if there were no other verses that mention this, that might be a weird take on it, but there are. Right The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit uh, is one example that is found not just in Matthew 12, not just in Mark 3, but in Luke 12. All three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark and Luke, address the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that only Pharisees could have done back then. I think Matthew, Mark and Luke include the passage of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because it's still done today. and the, blas, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the, the quote-unquote unforgivable sin. And that's the question many Christians have. If you, it, it, top five questions that Christians ask, what is the unforgivable sin? If you remember when we were in Mark, I unpacked that for us, and I, here's my take on it. I think the unforgivable sin, according to Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 12, uh, the unforgivable sin is when the gospel is so clearly revealed to you, that the gospel is so obvious, the Holy Spirit works to put the truth of the gospel in front of you in such a clear and obvious way, and you high-handedly, overtly reject it. You know, People that don't understand the gospel, they still are not in. It's not like God lets them into heaven. I know you didn't get it. The math was too hard. You didn't quite understand it. So it was ignorance. No, there's people that are unsaved because they're ignorant. And there are people that are unsaved because not because they're ignorant. They know the gospel. They used to teach the gospel, and they repudiate it. They defy it. And what does the Bible say about that? I think what Jesus says about that is that's unforgivable. How can that be forgivable if you reject the gospel? There's no forgiveness for you. But it's the resolute nature of the the rejection of the gospel. You know, you've got unbelieving friends who are kind of like church isn't for me, man. You know, I'm not into it. I'm not into it. That's different than I used to go to church. I hate the church. I hate the gospel that God would call me a sinner that I deserve death. That's the most reprehensible thing I ever heard in my life. I'm a good person. I don't. I'm not going to serve a God like that. You describe the God of the Bible, and they're they're clearly at enmity with God. Not because they don't understand them. They do understand the gospel, and they reject it. uh, To use an Old Testament term, high-handedly, defiantly knowingly with the truth in front of them. The, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews has five warning passages that talk about this. You knew the truth, you tasted it, you, you, you touched it, you were there with it, and then you rejected it. And what does the author of Hebrews say about that? There's no more forgiveness for you, sir. I mean, there, there is a point of rejection to the point of not turning back. And that, that might sound harsh, but you think about how Jesus sent out his disciples. You go to these doors, and some of them are going to accept you and be hospitable to you, and some people are going to just reject the gospel. Just keep knocking. Just keep hanging out. Sleep on the welcome mat until they let you in. He says, shake your sandals and go to the next house. Right? You think of John 17 when Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he tells the Father, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you've called. I'm not praying for the world. That doesn't mean we don't pray for unbelievers. Don't don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is the emphasis in Scripture is to pray for those who are brothers and sisters and they haven't sinned themselves to death. There's no need to shake your sandals off. There's no need to hand them over to Satan, 1 Corinthians 5, or something like that. This is a category that he's talking about where there isn't a defiance of the gospel. Rather, it's a, a Christian that is embroiled in something. They they they're committing a sin or have committed a sin that is become has become a burden for them to use the Galatians 6 language and our job is to come and help them bear that burden. Our job is to come and help them stop that trespass and get out of it. And there's hope for them because they're not unrepentantly defiant of the gospel. They just messed up. And we need to come alongside those brothers and sisters prayerfully and if we pray for them That messing up won't turn into a long pattern that will eventually reveal that they weren't in. I know that's hard. Again, we're touching on sort of paradoxical themes here, right? That from our perspective, we don't know who the elect are. From our perspective, we can we can see fruit, but it takes sometimes a long time to discern whether somebody is bearing fruit or not. God has that perfect vision, but for us. You know, we, we pray when someone sins that they won't do it again. We pray that it won't become a pattern. We pray that eventually they will have the perseverance that real Christians actually have. So that on that day of judgment, they will have the confidence that they have ultimate life in Jesus Christ. Either way, you take the passage, whether it means physical death or spiritual death, I, I think you're, you're still within orthodoxy. I don't think it's heresy to take it one way or the other. Uh, there are some really problematic uh, takes on the passage when people say there are certain kinds of sins that boot you out of God's grace and certain kinds of sins that don't. Mortal sins, heinous sins, really bad sins, they kick you out. Those are sins that lead to death. So you can lie to your boss and you're okay. I mean, that was bad, but you're still saved. But if you Uh, commit adultery you're out and something has to be done for you to be resaved i reject that i don't think that's consistent not only with the rest of scripture i think that's wholly inconsistent with first john you don't even have to leave first john to see that that doesn't make sense so it's not that he's talking about certain kinds of sins are really bad enough to separate you from god and other sins they're bad but doesn't separate you from god all sin Separates us from God, but there is one kind of sin that is unforgivable, and if we, we want to figure out, well what sin is that, what kind of sin leads to final death? There's no other way out of it: uh, a sin that is unable to be forgiven. Well, then you go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, who talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus calls it the unforgivable sin. And if you ask, well, how come Matthew, Mark and Luke say it, and John doesn't, well, he saved it for first, John, it would be my response. So I think that's what he's getting at here, and that's a difficult category, and that's a tough pill for a lot of us to swallow, that there is such a thing as a sin that leads to death. But now that makes sense, right? For John to repeat it this many times, guys, not all sin is this. Somebody messes up in sin, you don't automatically kick them out of the church, say that they're anathema. You don't automatically cut them off and say they've are they high-handedly rejected the gospel. We are not to have anything to do with them anymore. There is a category for that, but that's not when when a Christian falls. When a Christian falls, you, you back them up. You come alongside them, pray for them. You're hopeful for them. Not every sin leads to death. Verse 17, now it makes sense to me. All wrongdoing is sin. We have to treat sin seriously. All levels of it. All kinds of it. None of this, some of it is heinous, some of it is not. All sin is heinous. There are levels of perversion but there's not the sins that keep you in favor with God and then the sins that don't all wrongdoing is sin. But there's a kind of sin that doesn't lead to ultimate death. There's a category for the sinning Christian, not continually sinning, not unrepentantly sinning, but the Christian that trespasses, the Christian that steps out of line and has to be corrected. If that weren't true, why do we, why do we preach? Why does Paul tell Timothy the power of Scripture, the prophet of Scripture, is to teach, correct, and rebuke and exhort? Of course, we need to be constantly pushed back into the lane that we're supposed to be in. But that, that's different than altogether leaving the race. And so they are a church that's reeling from the pain of, of people that they called brothers, people that they called sisters, that have given up on the faith, that, have re, that reject it, that are enemies to the gospel now in such overt and obvious ways. And he's saying not every sin is put somebody in that category, guys. Brothers and sisters are going to disappoint you. Uh, You don't probably have to be too new to CFC to realize some people here are going to disappoint you. You don't have to be that new to CFC for me to have probably already disappointed you. You know, we're human. We're frail. We're not all wise. We're not perfect. We're not omniscient. And sometimes we're selfish and we don't always put Our brothers first, and we're not always the best keepers of our brothers. And sometimes we act Cain like in a moment or in an instance. But hopefully, if you call that out in us uh and you pray for us, uh you will see that God keeps us and grants us life uh that we can only have in Jesus Christ. And so his call is to band together and use prayer as a weapon, not to get tomorrow's schedule done but mainly as a way to rescue one another in church. And so this sin uh, is not always discernible. I don't think we're always able to tell that somebody has sinned themselves to death, so to speak. Sometimes it looks pretty much like that's that's the case for somebody. But you'll notice the passage doesn't go on in how to discern whether someone sinned to death, how to figure out what that what that you know, where, where that line was crossed. He's not even saying you shouldn't pray for them. If you look at it carefully, he's just saying, I'm not saying pray for those. I'm, what I am saying is pray for, for Christians who sin. So he, he's not saying it is wrong to pray for someone that you think, that you suspect, has sinned and rejected the gospel to the point where there's no hope for them. Maybe you could pray for them. Uh, We don't have, like I said, God's x-ray vision to see for sure whether someone's in that blasphemous state or not. But what he is doing is trying to encourage you to what he's trying to focus you on what he is trying to encourage you to do, which is to not leave Christians behind, Christians that are immature, Christians that are still a little lazy, Christians that still have habits to break, Christians that still do a good week and then they mess up. Christians that were your best friend for a month and then hurt you. They broke your heart. Don't leave them behind. Pray for them so that they change and so that they stay in the race. And that might be the difference between life and death for them. Don't just chalk them up to death immediately because not all sin should be that. There's a category of sin that Christians do bounce back from. And a lot of times the way that Christians bounce back from their sin is because of the prayers of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he gives us a promise, doesn't he? The promise makes sense, I think, if we define it this way. He says, if you pray for someone who sins, not the the blasphemous apostasy thing, I'm focusing on the kind of sin where someone's stuck, someone has trapped themselves in something, someone has done something obvious and disappointing, not an inner sin of the heart that's hard to discern, but something obvious, they're caught. You pray for them, and you ask that God would rescue them out of that, that God would preserve them, that God would not let them veer off, but that God would keep them. And God's promise, I'll do it. I'll keep them. I don't even know uh, how many prayers have gone into the fact that I'm still here. I don't mean here physically. I mean here spiritually. Why do have so many fellow Moody Bible Institute students not just uh, failed to enter into the ministry, but repudiate the gospel today? Classmates. Why them? Why not me? Why am I still here preaching, believing? Probably the prayers of others, most of which I'm not even aware of. And so when you all tell me, Pastor, I'm praying for you. When you send me a random text, I prayed for you this week. I tell you, to me, that's not a throwaway line. That's not something that I take lightly. And I hope you don't with each other. I hope that you look forward, even though you're tired, even though you're Zoom fatigued, to get to that point in the growth group where you're praying for one another, that you take it seriously because this is life and death stuff. This is not pray for my dog, pray for my cold. Uh, The carpet cleaners were late yesterday and now backed us up. Pray that we get that schedule figured out. You all need to make sure that your growth groups are pressing into this kind of prayer life the prayer life that matters for eternity, the prayer life that matters for life and death. And I'm not going to criticize uh, praying for parking spaces. I'm not saying God doesn't care about the ins and outs of your daily life. What I'm saying is if the bulk of your prayer, Is trivial things and only a tiny sliver of it is this weighty matter i think we're out of sync with scripture prayer is for preserving one another and we do that by praying for one another and we cling to god's promise of course it's god's will that he preserve his own but he preserves his own through the prayers of his people and we don't say well i'm calvinist so i'm not going to pray he just he just preserves yeah he preserves through the prayers of his people let's engage Let's be a part of that plan because God tells us to be a part of that plan so we can look back and go, God did preserve our brothers and sisters at at CFC, but he did it because we took prayer seriously and we prayed and interceded for one another and we didn't stop doing that when they failed. We especially did it when they failed. We step up to the plate of prayer when our brother fails or our sister fails. We don't just write them off. And as much as scripture might talk about a category of people that you do send out of the church, people that you do break fellowship with, people that you do shake the sandals off of, you don't do that with everybody. You don't do that as soon as somebody messes up, but you back each other up with prayer. And so when he says in, uh, in verse 18, he says, we know, uh, or verse 17, um all wrongdoing is sin but there is sin that does not lead to death there's a hopeful tone in it right yeah there's a lot of sin but not all of it leads to death and there's the hopeful tone the hopeful tone is to be hopeful for your brother or your sister and not write them off too quickly and uh when he says that uh we are that we are given life when we're prayed for in verse 16 um some of your translations might be a little different there, and I think it matters enough to just unpack it just for a moment. If anyone asks, uh, sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and actually the text says, and he will give him life. And he will give him life. Some of your translations, the ESV says God will give him life, and that's an assumption we make. We're not sure if it means God will give him life or the person praying will give him life, but I, I think, I think it, it might mean that the person praying will give him life. Obviously, ultimately, God is the only one that gives life, but there's an indirect sense that we give life to one another by praying. In other words, you prayed that effective prayer for life for the other person, and God grants it. So there's a sense in which you granted life to that person. I think of Matthew 18, uh, someone causes an offense. If you take that offense to them and they repent, you've won your brother. You've gained your brother. Uh, to take the Greek literally there, you've profited your brother, right? Well, I didn't gain my brother. Jesus did it. Okay, yes, Jesus did it, but the passage is saying through your confrontation, through your calling out the sin in that person's life and confronting them, you gave them the opportunity to repent, and you gained your brother. I think of Jude 23, where Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Well, You know, you might say, well, Jesus is the only one that can snatch people out of fire. Right. But he uses his children to do it. He uses the Christians to do the snatching by confronting, by preaching, by explaining the gospel, by reminding the gospel, exhorting, correcting with scripture. And what John is saying is another way that we save others and give others life. Of course, God is the ultimate giver of life. But one way that we play a part in that is by praying for one another. And so, I want us to make sure that we don't reverse this, that we pray so wholeheartedly for unbelieving neighbors. Uh, And and should we pray for people that fall away from church? I say yes. I, I, I don't think he's commanding that we don't, but I think his emphasis is to pray for the brothers and sisters that are still here with us. They just need help, they just need to be pushed along, they just need to be encouraged. And is it possible that we are sometimes tempted? To be quick to show grace to the evil, to show mercy to the wayward, and be also quick to shoot our brothers as soon as they disappoint us. We don't want to reverse it. We want to keep the emphasis where it lies in scripture, which is to pray for the brothers. Not saying you shouldn't pray for the world, not even saying you definitely shouldn't pray for people that are apostates, but you definitely need to be praying for the brothers that are still there with you, even if they're a little ugly, even if they're a little bit slow, even if they're a little bit immature. I'm, not, I'm talking spiritually, right? In those terms that not all Christians are up to snuff. And guess what? Some days, the most mature of us have days where we're immature and we do immature things and we think immature thoughts. And we need to be able to bank on the prayers of each other and not shoot each other immediately. And so it's a passage of hope. It's a passage of grace reminding us that we need to persevere in our faith. And one of the ways that we persevere in our faith is on the backs of the prayers of our brothers that surround us, of our brothers and sisters that walk with us in prayer. And then he ends with assurance, because any time the topic of the unpardonable sin comes up, any time this topic of sin leading to death comes up, the, the top question, if you just Google it, I did this morning just to see, the top question that comes up is, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And any of you who've been Christian long enough, you know that's going to be a top question that anyone asks you when they start learning the Bible. They find out there's an unforgivable sin. They read those five warning passages in Hebrews and go, man, did I do the reversal? They read 2 Peter 2. Did I turn away when I sinned last week? I got the gospel. I've been going to church. And then I kind of, I I messed up really bad. And so I think John sees that. He knows that he's got to follow this scary passage up with assurance as he's been doing this whole time. And he does it in a triple form. He says, we know three times at the top of 18, 19, and 20. We know, we know, we know. I don't want you leaving here wondering, doubting, am I apostate? Listen, the unforgivable sin is so obvious, If you wouldn't be asking the question. If you were even concerned that you've offended God, you definitely have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The blasphemer of the Holy Spirit could care less what God thinks, right? But he wants you to know that you you are in, you are, even if you've sinned, you live a life of repentance. That is not ongoing sin. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Right? So he's saying the Christian is preserved. The Christian doesn't have to wake up every morning or wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, wondering if that dream, they sinned in the dream, did that kick me out? You know, oh my goodness, last night. I cussed, and I forgot to ask God's forgiveness, and wake up at 3 in the morning, like, am I saved? Wow, if I died in my sleep, I would have gone to hell. He doesn't want you to have that theology. He wants you to know that you're a believer. He wants you to trust that God is raising up other Christians around you to pray for you, to keep you, to preserve you. And it's not something that is wishy-washy. It's something that you know, that you can trust, that you can cling to. It's assurance we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. Yeah, you messed up. Don't keep doing it. Yes, you tripped. Don't fall. Don't, don't, don't leave the race. You keep pressing. You keep striving. You keep pushing. You keep moving forward. And that's how you know someone's being preserved. That's how you know somebody is in. Why? Because someone who is born of God protects him. Uh, Here's where translations differ and people differ again. People say, Who is born of God that that does the protecting? Well, a lot of people say, well, only Jesus ultimately can protect us, so he must be the one born of God. The problem with that is the other six times that John says born of God in this epistle, he's referring to Christians. So here's what I think. I think, yes, ultimately Jesus is the one that does the protecting, but again, I think what he's saying is when you pray for others, when you back them up with your prayer, you're effective praying according to God's will that God would preserve them. He grants that, and you protected your brother. I think that's what he means here. He who was born of God protects him. The Christian, the, the, the other brother, protects him. Of course, ultimately, God is the one that does the protecting. But look at the result at the end of verse 18. And the evil one does not touch him. You know, someone sins in church. We don't go, oh, my goodness, Satan has them. Satan has them. They sinned. I can't believe they sinned. They must be of the evil one. John's like, hey, they're still preserved. They're still protected. In fact, they'll continue to be preserved if you don't give up on them and you back them up with your prayer. And in fact, uh, a sinner, a Christian that commits a sin doesn't mean that they're of the evil one. In fact, it means they're not touched by the evil one. They're preserved ultimately, even through their failings. What a wonderful promise that even when we make big mistakes even when they hurt or we hurt others and we don't act like the loving christians that we are it doesn't mean that we are uh to be accused by satan the adversary as being not of god we know we know we're of god because our being in isn't dependent on perfect performance our being in is dependent on christ's perfect performance his propitiation his atonement on our behalf. And the result of that, the proof, one of the evidences of that is that when we fall, we don't stay down. We get back up and we keep pushing and we keep striving. We persevere and we are preserved by each other's prayers. And he says in uh, verse 19, again, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's John's way of saying, this is real. This is a real battle. This is really serious. It's not that Satan doesn't have power. You know, when, when Satan tempted Jesus, I'll give you this. If you just bow. Jesus didn't go, give me what? You don't own anything. Well, he in a sense, he does, doesn't he? The Satan is powerful, actually. But he's not equal to the power of God. This isn't yin and yang. This isn't like, you know, light and dark, evil forces. Who's going to win? Oh, my. It, it's not even close. And so his assurance is, yes, there's a whole world that's full of evil, evil, but you know you're not of that world. You're from God. Cling to that assurance, and that'll, that'll keep you in the race. Verse 20 again, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's just wrapping all this up. He is the true God and eternal life. Don't listen to those false gospels. Don't pay attention to those uh, people who would twist the gospel into something else. You know the truth, and that truth is what will keep you. And when the accuser accuses you of falling, recognize that it is God's will for you to persevere and, uh, because you are his. And you know you're his because of these assurances. You don't know you're his because you've performed perfectly. You know you're his because of an understanding, the word he uses, an understanding. Of Jesus Christ, that's how you know you're in. And so He gives us this: we know, we know, we know, uh, to follow up that promise of prayer, which is which is so powerful. I think of I skipped this earlier, but I think of the difference between Peter and Judas. You remember when we were in Mark? This is really important. Remember when we were in Mark? Jesus was betrayed by two disciples. Well, all the disciples scattered, didn't they? But the the text focuses, is, uh, focuses on Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. And Judas ends up uh, sinning himself to death. Peter sinned, but was restored. And what's the difference? The difference, and you can uh, you can mark it down, the difference is Luke 22, 32, where Jesus tells Peter, Satan wants to sift you, but I'm going to pray for you jesus prays an effective prayer for peter and so peter doesn't fall all all away he sins he stumbles but he's restored why prayer intercession that's why and so jesus is already setting the tone setting the model this is how we rescue and preserve one another by prayer then he ends with this line that exhorts his people to keep themselves from idols. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And what I do love about that is the final word is not just assurance. The final word is not to rest in what Jesus has done for you, although he's hit that and he's massaged it over and over. We know, we know, we know. But just because you know doesn't mean go relax and be unaware of the dangers that lie outside these doors if we were in church right outside uh the zoom call the dangers that lie outside of sunday the dangers you're going to face tomorrow and the danger isn't a virus that is a physical virus the danger is a virus called idolatry and that is not something relegated to remote tribes in the jungle worshiping wooden carvings this is something that all christians wrestle with Uh, he might have actual idols in mind here Uh, You know, we don't know the full historical context of the heresies that he's battling in that time and in that place. Obviously, even today, people literally worship idols, actual physical images. But uh, you remember in um, a couple places in, in Paul's writing, Ephesians 5, verse 5, Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul equates idolatry with covetousness. Actually, the way that Paul defines idolatry is covetousness which is the 10th commandment, right? It's how God wraps up the 10 commandments. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Look, just don't covet. You know? And it's like, it covers everything, right? The reason why you commit adultery is you covet. Uh, the reason why Cain murdered his brother is because he coveted. Um, the reason why we would worship a graven image is because we covet. The reason why we worship a different God is because we covet. And so what an appropriate wrap up to the 10 commandments to talk about covetousness. And so uh, in a sense, the Ten Commandments begins and ends with idolatry because idolatry is the posture of the fallen heart. It's, it's our default. And so he ends this letter by saying you need to worship this one true God and worship him holy and worship him truly and worship him zealously uh, and not veer off into worshiping anything else, even yourselves. Uh, no false gospels, no adjustments to the, to the truth of God, but worship him as he is and so i think that's why he leaves us with that Uh, he wants to assure us but also give us a challenge keep pressing keep moving forward and you know how you're going to stay out of the idolatry lane brothers and sisters praying for you so you have ultimate life that's how that's one of the main ways that's going to happen that's the prescription that this passage gives us think about how this passage comports so well with Other passages like Galatians 6, you remember that? Galatians 6, a famous passage. What do you do when a brother is caught in a trespass? Ignore them, diss them, unfriend them. No, help them bear that burden. You come alongside. But then he says, but watch out. Watch out so that you don't fall in the same trespass. And so there's the encouragement to help one another. And then the warning to as you're helping one another, stay in the fight. Don't you go get mixed up in the sin. And John has that same kind of tone. You find you you, you have this powerful weapon of prayer. Use that powerful weapon of prayer, not just for yourself, but to help other brothers and sisters around you that are failing or have failed in some way. But just be careful that all of you stay away from the lane of idolatry. God is going to preserve you and keep you, but you need to recognize that that evil is real. Satan is powerful, the world is his, and this is not going to be easy. And as soon as you think it's going to be easy, you're going to re- think you don't need prayer. And as soon as you don't think prayer, you're not going to pray for one another. And as soon as you're not praying for one another, we are in danger. And so, the final thing I want to leave you with as we think about this is that I think for a lot of us, probably all of us in some measure or another, we have to switch from what, like when we sin. Our default mode is to hope no one finds out. This is why when we get together, it's really hard to pray actual prayer requests. This is why our prayer requests are filled with kind of flimsy, that's a prayer request you'd share with anybody. If I just meet somebody now, i cross the street, meet somebody now, I'd say, yeah, pray, pray I don't catch this virus. Yeah, everybody knows that. But who can I come to with my failure? Who can I come to with my sin? And say, brother, I I need you to pray for me because th- this is something I'm failing in right now. All right, this week I failed in this way. See, but but if we if we protect ourselves from that embarrassment, from that shame, and it is shameful, sin is shameful. I'm not saying we should just flippantly be like, hey, I sinned this week, and we high five. We get to the point where we fist bump each other because we sin. That that's where accountability goes awry. I sinned this week. How many times did you sin this week? Oh, you too? Yeah, me too. But, you know, there's no challenge to it. There should be shame. Uh, That's part of it. If if we lose shame, our consciences are seared. That's problematic. But we don't allow the shame to, to bring us to a point where we're too cowardly to share it. Because if we hide it, Our brothers may not know that we're caught in sin. And if they don't know that we're caught in sin, they can't pray for us. And if they don't pray for us, we might be in trouble. The very thing that saved Peter and made Peter not a Judas was prayer. And so rather than immediately seeking to hide our sins from one another, I think our mode is to take that sin to somebody and hope that somebody sees it, hope that somebody knows it, who is a prayerful person. And why want us at CFC to, de- to continue to develop the kind of community where people can know and trust. If you come to us with sin, we've got your back. We're not going to throw you out on the road. If you're repentant and you want help, this where else are you supposed to go? Church is supposed to be the place to go. What if it's ugly? What if you think no one else in CFC has done it this bad? What if you think no one else has even heard of such a thing? I can tell you right now, that's a lie. But even in that scenario, if you don't want to die, you should make sure somebody knows what you're struggling with so that you can be prayed for and so that this promise can be clinged to, that someone else can take this promise. God's promising that if we pray for an ailing brother, spiritually ailing brother or sister, God will restore them to life. God will ultimately get them to the finish line of eternal life. God will do it through the protection and support of your prayer. That means we need to be less private about these things. I'm not saying get up as soon as we, you know, next Sunday, uh, announce to the entire church your sin. What I'm saying is to make sure that a brother, a sister, or two, or three, maybe the whole growth group, knows how they can specifically be praying for you Rather than going around the table going, no, nah, I'm good. No, nah, just a little tired. No, nah, just a little tired this week. Come on. It, that, that is not helping each other. And that is not recognizing the danger that we're in in this battle against trespasses, idolatry of the heart, and sinfulness. So I want to invite you now to pray with me that we would be this kind of prayer, uh, prayerful church. Uh, that is supportive of one another, not excusing sin, recognizing all doing wrongdoing is sin before God to not minimize sin, but to not privatize it either, so that we can help one another uh, finish uh, with eternal life let's let 's pray, Father, as we close in this song, uh, we are thankful to you for the assurance that you do give us. We want to sing this song, Lord, with uh, hearts that recognize that we know we're we have a relationship with you purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ that cannot be robbed by the evil one that is not derailed as soon as we commit some infraction. But we also recognize that assurance is not an excuse to be lazy. Assurance is not an excuse to be sinful, but that we need to press. We need to guard ourselves. Keep ourselves. From idolatry. Help us to be a prayerful people as we do that. Help us to lift one another up in meaningful prayer, serious prayer that takes sin and righteousness seriously. And we thank you that we have each other, that this is not everyone run their own race kind of thing, but that it's a a teamwork thing. And that uh, as we arrive on that day of judgment with total confidence that you've rescued us and given us life ultimately. And we can look back and see uh, all the prayers that sustained us and kept us where we're supposed to be. And we thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Amen.
1: Blessed assurance Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my side. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest, I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in the This is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day long. And this is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day. Praising
4: my Savior all the day Father, we recognize that we don't always praise you all the time. But those times where we fail to praise you, fail to appreciate you, are probably those times that we fail to recognize the assurance that you do give us uh help us to not be anxious of heart help us to not be fearful paranoid of whether or not we are in favor with you uh, help us also to not be flippant and to use assurance as a license to disappoint you uh we love you and so uh, as gratitude as uh, grateful as we are for this assurance We want to worship you as a result. We want to bear fruit as a result. And so we pray that we would display in obvious ways the the life that we've received in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would preserve that life in one one another through our prayers and through our praying. Uh, Help us to be a church that uh, grows in the maturity that it takes to share with maybe some key people in the church about the the real things that we're facing, the real things that we're uh, going through so that we can bear with one another, tackle those things together, and come out on the other side proving once again that in Jesus Christ, we are victorious overcomers and that the evil one can't touch us. Thank you for that truth, God, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Amen.